Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. None of the care shows up in the GDP. So we have no way of saying, is this a country where people love each other and sit and listen to the problems that their child has or their partner has or their friend has? That's all completely invisible. Or even take care of their old people. That's all completely invisible. Hello, welcome to The Client Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So I've been reading a lot of parenting literature lately. Uh, you can guess why. <laughs> and I'll, I'll be honest, I don't like most of it. I, I think it's quite bad. Um, and it, it's bad because it's, I don't know, it's like it's like IKEA documents for raising a kid. And it, most of it seems very focused on on a lot of the wrong things. And it's just remarkable how distant it feels from the experience, how, I mean, how little there really is in a lot of these books about love, about trying to be a, a good person or raise a good person. But of the books I've read, there's one that's had this very, very big effect on me, which is Alison Gopnik's book, The the Gardener and the Carpenter. Uh, Gopnik is a professor of psychology and philosophy at Berkeley. And this is a, a quite remarkable book about childhood development, but also about why and how human beings love um, and what are the different kinds of, of care. The thing that we talk a lot about in here that affected me so much reading the book, and it, it's much more, it's much broader than, than about having children, but is the way love is instantiated through acts of care. Um, we don't love in a transactional way where I do this for you and you do it for me. I love you because I do this for you and do this for you and do this for you. And it, it's quite a remarkable thing to think about. Um, and then the other big idea of the book, the reason I'm putting uh, this conversation in this series on creativity is it's very much about the differences between trying to parent or even be in a relationship where you're trying to make the person or the child into something that, that you can already imagine. And this gardener approach where you're creating space to flourish in ways you can't imagine. And it's about the experience of children and how they grow and how they learn and how what creativity is in their brains and how we lose it as we get older. So this is not a, a conversation that is of relevance only to parents or even primarily to parents. It's of relevance to anybody who has relationships. Um, really, it is. And it's of relevance to anyone who wants to think about creativity and the parts of the child's mind that we lose as we get older and, and maybe how to get a little bit of them back and also importantly how to help others get a little bit of them back um as always my email is ezrakleinshow at vox.com again ezrakleinshow at vox.com with feedback guest ideas whatever uh, but here is allison gopnik allison gopnik welcome to the podcast great to be here how did you start studying children 
Well, I'm the oldest of six. So when you're the oldest of six, that means that you're a caregiver um, pretty early. Of the famed Gopnik clan. Of the famed Gopnik clan. I didn't know that your brother was Adam Gopnik. Uh, my brother is Adam Gopnik, and my other brother is Blake Gopnik, and my sister is Morgan Gopnik. And, uh there's there's a bunch of us, and we were. I mean, in fact, the most amazing thing is that my parents, who then became uh, then became university professors, uh, had six kids in eleven years. So we were very close, and there were a lot of us, and so there were a lot of young children around. And from the time that I can remember, I always thought that younger kids were just fascinating. They were just incredibly interesting. Um, and then when I got into college, I sort of kept that thought, and I remember reading uh, Socrates for the first time when I was about 10 years old. And I thought this was like the most wonderful. You were doing what at 10 years old? <laughs> well, this is a typical example of my insane parents. So I'd actually watched a program on television, which I tracked down was a, a play called Barefoot in Athens with Peter Ustinov playing Socrates. And there was all this drama, but what I loved was the idea that you could just have people who sat around and talked and argued and all day long. And my parents, in their typical way, said, okay, well, here's a copy of the uh, of Socrates' dialogues. I remember it had the Raphael picture on the front. Um, and here it is. And I loved it. And it's interesting. A lot of philosophers say the Phaedo, which is one of the dialogues, is what turned them into a philosopher. The Apology is the famous one when Socrates is dying. But the Phaedo is actually a more profound one because it's about whether you could exist after you die. And you know, 10-year-olds are really interested in this question about immortality. And Socrates makes this argument that you must have an eternal soul that exists before you're born and then exists later because you couldn't have something coming out of nothing. And I remember when I read it, I thought to myself, but what about kids, right? I mean, that's the way that our soul continues. The when we have children, when we have parents, that's a kind of continuity. And the really striking thing was Socrates, it just never occurred to Socrates. I mean, you know, it was like it wasn't in the space of possibilities. Um, and then when I went to uh, college as an undergraduate, I became a philosophy major and I was deeply a philosophy honor student and I was deeply engaged in philosophy and thought that that was what I was going to spend the rest of my life doing, which in some sense I have. Um, but again, there were all these questions like, how do we come to know the world around us? Or how do uh, arbitrary sounds get meaning in language? And it just always seemed obvious to me that you could actually find out something about the answer to those questions by looking at kids. And philosophers had just, for obvious reasons, because they were mostly male and a lot of them were at least notionally celibate, um, <laughs> they just hadn't. They just hadn't looked at this at all. I I did an analysis for my my second book, the Philosophical Baby of the uh, Encyclopedia of Philosophy in 1967, and you know thousands and thousands of pages, and four references to babies and children in the whole thing. You could read it and think that human beings reproduced by asexual cloning. You would have no idea that this was part of uh, this was part of human existence. So when I got to Oxford, um, I was spending a lot of time with the philosophers in Logic Lane, which is where the philosophers are at Oxford. And uh, and I was also spending a lot of time with Jerome Bruner, the great developmental psychologist, and being up in the, the villas where they parked the women and children. And that experience convinced me that I could spend the rest of my life with one of two communities. I could spend the rest of my life with this community of completely disinterested seekers after truth who just wanted to find out the deepest question answers to the deepest questions about the world, 
or I could spend the rest of my life with these egocentric, solipsistic, somewhat whiny creatures who needed to be taken care of by women all the time. And since the first group was the babies and the second group was the philosophers, I figured it was probably better to stick I, with the babies. I have to say, I didn't see that hit coming. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't see where you're going with that till midway through. That was very well done. <laughs> Clearly a, a, well, a well-constructed bit there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, and so you, you begin doing that. What is the, how do you study the developmental worlds of children? Yeah, so part of what uh, my timing was really good to be someone who was a philosopher who was interested in children because, you know, to be fair to the philosophers, part of the reason why people hadn't paid much attention to children and especially the very young children who I study, the two, three, four-year-olds, is because it's hard to figure out what's going on in their minds. You know, if you ask a three-year-old a question, you'll get a beautiful stream of consciousness riff about ponies and birthdays, but you won't get anything that feels like it's very much like rational thought. And what happened was that in the 70s and 80s, when I was uh, starting graduate school, uh, suddenly there were a whole bunch of new techniques that you could use, especially videotape, that meant that by looking at things like where babies looked or what they reached for or with slightly older children, giving them a real active problem to solve, um, if you did that in a clever way, you could figure out a tremendous amount about how they thought, even about abstract things like uh, what was going on in another person's mind. So the work that I f- started doing uh, in my postdoc in the 80s was about how could you figure out what another person is thinking? Again, classic philosophical question. And we know that children are the ones who are doing this, but no one had been able to figure out how it was that they um, how it was that they did it. And we discovered that by asking very simple questions about very concrete scenarios, you could show pretty deep things about how children understood other people. Can you give me an example? So the famous example that we did first back in the 80s is you can show a child a closed up candy box and they open up the candy box and it turns out that it has pencils inside of it. And then they're very surprised. You close the box. You say, what did you think was inside this box when we first saw it all closed up like this? Did you think there were candies inside or did you think there were pencils inside? So you've given the kid a very concrete example with just two choices, candies, pencils. And you can also ask, um, if Nikki in the daycare comes in and sees this box all closed up, will he think there are candies inside or will he think there are pencils inside? And what we found was that even if you asked about the children's own belief, the three-year-old said, I always thought that there were pencils inside and that Nikki would also think that there were pencils inside. But the four-year-old said, oh, I thought that there were uh, candies inside, uh, but now I know that there are really pencils inside. And again, that may seem simple, but what that means is that the four-year-olds had developed a concept of belief, including the idea that beliefs could be false. So they understood that I could believe one thing, you could believe another thing, I could believe something now different from what I believed in the past, different from what I might believe in the future. Um, And, you know, as you probably know from doing politics, that's a pretty deep insight. Um, So two things were really striking about this. One of them was that the four-year-olds could do this very systematically, even in a new setting. So that meant that they were not egocentric. They were taking other people's perspectives in a pretty sophisticated way. But also the three-year-olds weren't. So something was happening that was letting the children learn this really deep thing about uh, human nature. So one of my, uh, one of the contexts for me in this conversation is my son is 14 weeks old. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm so fascinated by what his experience of the world is like. Uh, you know, he's just kind of like his head is on a swivel and he's got these big <laughs> eyes. And, you know, in your book, you write that there it's now believed the experience of children is and, and infants is somewhat similar to the experience of people on psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about what what that means? Yeah. So I'm not sure it's generally believed, but I kind of think it might be true. <laughs> I, I think other people might. Uh, other people might think that's that's uh, that's a little crazy, although maybe not. I mean, it's been amazing to me. Um, how quickly ideas about psychedelics have, have become accepted in the broader neuroscience and psychology community. But here's, here's the basic idea. Um, part of my sort of big general picture about childhood is that childhood is a period that allows you to explore, mm -hmm. allows you to explore in the sense of getting new information, um, and also lets you explore possibilities. And, uh, and that's kind of the whole point of childhood. We're willing, as you know, if you have a 14-month-old, we're willing to put so much investment into just taking care of these children uh, from an evolutionary perspective because that gives humans in general this period where you can just be dedicated to getting information from the world and exploring possibilities. And, you know, for a 14-week-old, that's about um, attention. That's about what you look at. And then later on, it becomes the kind of playing that you do and the way you manipulate objects. And even later, it becomes something like pretend play where you're thinking about all the different ways the world, uh, different ways the world could be. And if that's your picture of what children are like, then the next question as a philosopher is, well, what consciousness goes with that? What, what kind of experience of the world might go with that way of being in the world, as opposed to the way that adults typically are in the world, which is that we're trying to accomplish particular goals, we have long-term plans, we're, we're focusing on specific things that we want to accomplish. That's a really different agenda than the agenda of just get as much information as you can, explore as many possibilities as you can. And it turns out that uh, when you look at imaging studies um, of people who have taken psychedelics, Essentially, what happens is that their brains look very much more like the brains of babies and young children than they do of typical adults. So one of the things we know happens in development is that the prefrontal cortex, which is sort of the executive office of the brain, gets to be more and more in control of the rest of the brain. So when you start out as a baby, there's not very much of that prefrontal control, and there's more and more and more as you get older. Well, you take uh, psychedelics, and that gets reversed. So there's less of that control. And if you look at baby brains, they're what neuroscientists call very plastic. So they're changing very easily. Lots of new connections, new little local connections are being made. And what happens as you get older is that the connections that are useful get strengthened, they get to be more efficient, and the ones that aren't just kind of get pruned. So you have this young brain that's very, very active with lots of little local connections, and then this later brain that is not as good at changing, but much better at acting. And again, if you look at the brains of people and animals under psychedelics, what happens is that they look more like that early brain, the very plastic brain with lots of local connection, and a lot of those long-distance connections get, uh, a lot of those long-distance connections seem to sort of deactivate. I'm a, often a bit skeptical about neuroscience, but this is a case where neuroscience really told us something that would have been hard to know otherwise, and then if you think about, like, your 14-week-old, they kind of look like they're tripping, right? I, I mean, was going to say this exact thing. Yeah. This is um, part of why this part of your book struck me so much. And then I remembered I'd read about your research in Michael Pollan's book as well. But when you wrote that, and then I thought, I've been around a lot of people who have been on psychedelics. 
And I thought, oh, I recognize that expression. That's the expression of of overwhelm. There's like more coming in than you quite know what to do with. Right. And you can't figure out where to look. And what I thought was so interesting about, about Michael's book was this idea that our brains grow organized. Mm-hmm. We begin to get better and better and better at filtering down. And that makes us more efficient. And in a way, it makes us less creative. It makes us less open to possibility. And the idea that psychedelics are a kind of uh, a way of short-circuiting that organization for a little while. Mm-hmm. But it makes a lot of sense then that, that the children, they haven't developed that organization because they wouldn't yet have the experience to know what that organization needed to be. But what a different way to go through the world. What an over... It, it made me very sympathetic in a way to, to, to my son when he seems overwhelmed because what an overwhelming experience. Yeah, exactly. And... And I think, but I think there's something else, which is one way that you could think about it is just, all right, well, children are uh, kind of defective grownups. They don't know as much. They're not as competent. And then they gradually become competent and their brains get more and more structure. But what I've been arguing is that actually there's a really deep trade-off between the kinds of abilities that we have as adults, the abilities you have when you have a lot of knowledge and a lot of information and a lot of skill. And the kinds of things that you can do when you have what, you know, the Zen masters call beginner's mind, the kinds of things that you can do when you have the kind of mind that uh, that uh, a baby has, for example, when you have a kind of mind that isn't just missing things, it's actually actively adapted to extract information. And it's I think it's actively adapted to uh, explore possibilities. So I think a lot of the things that look like bugs in babies and young children uh, like the fact that they're so noisy, literally and metaphorically, the fact that they're so variable, the fact that they do get overwhelmed, the fact that they're so bad at doing practical things like you know putting their jackets on and getting to preschool. Um, I think those may actually Wait, be- Wait, that one day can put jackets on? <laughs> they'll, you'll get there. You'll get there. <laughs> Um, but they'll still be re- it'll still be really, really frustrating <laughs> when you're trying to uh, to do it, partly because, you know, you have a choice. You could go to preschool or there's this tiny little bit of fluff that's on the on the floor and you could figure out what's going on with that tiny bit of fluff instead. Um, but the big idea. So the big idea is that you have this this trade off where the children have this protected period, which is where love comes in that we'll talk about later on. Um, in which they can do this kind of exploration. And then adults can take the results of the exploration and put them to use to do all the things that adults do. But I think in terms of thinking about creativity, one of the things about human adults is that we can kind of go back and forth. I don't think we're ever quite as open-minded and creative as the children are, but we can shift back and forth from this sort of explore mode into the exploit mode. And people in computer science and neuroscience talk about this really basic foundational trade-off between exploration and exploitation. You really can't Do you just want to say what exploitation means there for people not familiar with the term? Yeah. So the idea is, again, exploitation just means accomplishing things, uh, maximizing your utilities, uh, being able to go out and get reward, uh, accomplish goals. All the things that seem to us as adults to be kind of like boilerplate that's what people do and that's why they do the things they do is because they want to increase their utilities. They want to get, get things. They want to accomplish their goals. That just seems obvious. But if you look at a three-year-old, that isn't a very good way of describing what the three-year-old is um, is doing. And the three-year-old is going to look very, look very kind of defective and bad if you're thinking about that. Um, but if you're thinking about instead 
thinking about this explore motivation, which is get as much information as you can, uh, figure out as many possibilities as you can, explore as many possibilities as you can, then that's a really different picture. That's a really different motivational system. That's a really different set of emotions. Um, and I think those are what's characteristic of the babies and children. I, I want to zero in on, on something you said there, which is there is a, it's very easy to think that I'm a lot smarter than I was as a little kid <laughs> because I'm certainly more knowledgeable and I'm much better at solving problems. And I, I look back on myself as a little kid and I think I was very ineffective. <laughs> but, but you have this research published subsequently to, to the book um, where you find that as we grow older, learners are less flexible, less likely to adopt an initially unfamiliar hypothesis that is consistent with new evidence. Um, and that this just keeps happening. Preschoolers are more flexible than adolescents and adolescents more flexible than adults. And that we are actually losing a capacity that I would almost call creativity, mm -hmm. right? This ability to be open to a connection that maybe does not fit our, our, our pre-existing model of the world. And that's a, it's a sobering thought that there's some, some trade-off between knowledge and efficiency and what I think we would think of as intelligence and experience and creativity. Yeah. And I think Americans especially hate trade-offs. They, they, they want utopia. They want to be able to maximize everything. But I do think that the, the science suggests that these things really are trade-offs. Um, I did a lot of work on using models of Bayesian inference as a way of describing what's going on in cognition and what's going on in development. And if you think about it from a Bayesian perspective, you know, the Bayesian idea is that you have you have priors, you have a bunch of knowledge that you already have, you have a bunch of skills you already have, and then you have new information that's coming in. And often when people talk about the advantages of Bayesian reasoning, they say, well, look, you know, you can use the things that you know already to override new information that's coming in, or you balance those two things. Um, but that comes with a potential danger, and the potential danger is that the things that you know already, the pathways that you've already practiced and accomplished the skills you already have keep you from recognizing the weight of the evidence that's going in the other direction or keep you from recognizing that there are there are possibilities that are different from the possibilities possibilities you already have. Whenever somebody begins talking about Bayesian reasoning, my just bullshit detectors begin going <laughs> wild because it's so people are so bad at estimating their priors that it often seems to me to be dangerous in that it gives a false sense of precision about what people think or how strongly they should believe it. Mm -hmm. um, in, in some ways, it is useful in exposing what people are thinking. Mm -hmm. But as a way of reasoning about the world, it just seems to relocate where the potential flaw actually yeah. is. So so what happens is the, the I mean, my, we could have this as a different conversation, but I think, I think really the only thing that saying that something is Bayesian does is it it tells you two things. It tells you that it's probabilistic and that already from the cognitive science perspective is a big insight. And the other thing that it tells you is that you're trying to evaluate hypotheses against data. And again, that's not something that's necessarily obvious in the first um, in the first place. So I think those are the two big ideas, the two big insights that Bayesian ideas could could give you, as opposed to the idea that we're just, you know, we just have this grab bag full of random heuristics that we use that don't have any kind of rational structure. And actually, oddly enough, you know, my first book was called The Scientist in the Crib. And and one of the big ideas that I've had in my career is what's called the theory theory, along with other people, the idea that children are, are creating theories the way that scientists do. And it's kind of funny because 
on the one hand, if we look at babies and kids, we see something that actually looks really rational. These people who we thought were irrational turn out to really be good at doing things like testing hypotheses and weight, weighting them against data. And the adults, who are the people who we think should be the rational uh, induction engines, turn out not to be so rational. But uh, if you're thinking about this explore-exploit distinction, that may not be so crazy, because if what you want to do is just you know, maximize your utilities as quickly and effectively as you can in complicated situations where you have to make decisions really fast, then doing things like using heuristics and rules of thumb and following your immediate emotional impulses, that might not be a bad strategy. Yeah. You know, I have a friend, Emily Thorson, who is a political scientist who studies misinformation, the way people people make their decisions. And I was talking to her at some point about motivated reasoning and how, you know, people don't really change their minds with the evidence and, you know, going on the kind of rant that I think has become fashionable about how irrational people are. And, and, and she made the point, which has really influenced my thinking on this, that it would not be rational to be too easily moved exactly. in your biases. I mean, if you've been going through the world and you've uh, built up a certain amount of experience and a certain amount of sense of who you can trust, the idea that you would read one contrary article and all mm -hmm. of a sudden it would all be different, like that would not be a usable way to go through the world. And so I think that there can be a fetishization of people changing their minds that is out of, obviously out of proportion to how often people really change their minds, but also out of proportion to how much it would truly be rational going through the world to, to change their minds. And that's another, that's another advantage of thinking of it in the Bayesian framework. So if you think what happens with development, for example, is you get more and more information, you should rationally weight the information. You know, if you've had 30 years of experience and it all is confirming this one view, then you, you're right to dismiss evidence that goes against it. But I think actually a really interesting idea is that to get back to, you know, why do we have this very long period of childhood from an evolutionary perspective? And humans have a longer period of childhood than than any other species by a substantial amount. Um, why do we have periods like adolescence? I think you could make the argument that the way that we change minds often is through this kind of generational change more than through individual change. And that may seem sort of frustrating, but in a way, it's rational. So what you could have is you have a whole bunch of individual adults you want to have out there who are relying on the information they've gathered in the past, making decisions quickly and effectively, more or less, most of the time. Um, and especially if they're in the same environment that they've always been in. But having a group of people in the community, namely the children and maybe also the adolescents, who don't have that those biases and who are designed in other ways to have their their motivation be, let's try something new. Let's find out something new. Let's see if this other way of thinking about the world could actually work better. That's the thing that uh, kicks you out of what, uh, you know, com computer scientists talk about a local minimum where you you're trying to figure something out and you get to a place where just making a small change from where you are isn't going to do any better. So you kind of get stuck there, even if there's a solution that's much further away that really would be a better solution. And one of the arguments that I've made is that from an evolutionary perspective, childhood is really a way for the whole species to get out of those local minima. So, well, this was such an influential um, point in your book for me. So, so we should talk now about the the gardener and the carpenter uh, approach. But the idea that if you're trying to shape who your child becomes too much, you are 
actually cutting against the evolutionary purpose of children. Exactly. Right. I had not thought of it that way, that it's not a, a failure that your child didn't become the the little you or the, the the perfected you that you were trying to be. But it is actually from the perspective of the species, the point that the difference is built into the in, in into the maturation. So maybe why don't we start with the what, what do you what is a gardener and what is a carpenter in terms of your book? So. I'm, you know, there's nothing like having a nice vivid metaphor, especially for book titles. But in some ways, I I regret make using that title because then what happened was there were a zillion parenting blogs that said, "Which style do you have? Should you <laughs> be a, a gardener or a car?" Yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> Fill this out to find out which kind of a parent you are. Um, uh, which was not the idea at all, but. The idea behind well, from the perspective of the content industry, you want ideas to emerge, and then you you want them to be able to evolve <laughs> in different directions so that you can get more clicks and off monetize of them. them. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I actually think there's a deeper point there, which is that the the parenting idea, the idea that you can go out and shape your child if only you do certain kinds of things, is so pervasive that even if you write something that says, no, no, that's not the right way of thinking about it, what happens is people say, oh, yeah, that's right. I completely agree with you. Now, what did you tell me about how I should shape my child to come out a particular way? So what is Um, a carpenter and what is a gardener? So the idea is that a carpenter is someone who's operating in this adult mode of bringing about a certain outcome, shaping a chair in a particular way to make it be a good chair or shaping a business to be profitable or, you know, if you're a writer, shaping a book to say what you want it to say. And most of what we do or a lot of what we do as adults and certainly, interestingly, a lot of what is uh, identified as productive activity socially and economically has that kind of character. You know, there's, there's a problem, there's an output, there's a goal, you see if you can reach the goal. Um, but caring for children, and I, in fact, I think more broadly, just caring for people in general, just doesn't have that structure. It's not about bring, bringing about a particular outcome. And a metaphor that's a nice metaphor is if you think about gardening, what you do when you garden is, at least if you're a you know messy cottage gardener like me, is that you provide this space in which many, many different kinds of things can flourish, and then you kind of let 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 it go and see what will thrive in that space. And there's actually a deeper point about that than just the metaphor, which is that we know from evolutionary biology, from ecology, that if you want a system, a garden's really a system that is going to be robust, that's actually going to be able to change in the light of, say, different environments, you're much better off having something that's got variability and noise and randomness and unpredictability then you are having something that you can completely control and predict. And so that's actually a, you know, a principle in that we've discovered in ecology that, you know, having a single crop of potatoes is is not just a bad idea because you have the single crop, but because that is a fragile system, not a robust system. So the thought is that what childhood is about, uh, especially for human beings, is it's giving us this period for introducing novelty, variability, unpredictability. And Having that happen with each generational cycle makes makes human behavior more sensitive to novelty, more flexible, more robust than it would be otherwise. But again, from the adult perspective, the whole point, and I think, you know, I think this fits our intuitions and our experience of being a parent much better than the parenting model does. The whole point is that 
all these surprising things happen that you couldn't have anticipated beforehand. The individual kids are all different in ways that you couldn't have anticipated. They're kind of like you, but they're kind of not like you. And they kind of accept your cultural traditions, but then they kind of don't accept your cultural traditions. Um, and I think that sense of how surprising and autonomous and independent they are at the same time that you're completely committed to to nurturing them, I think there's something really kind of profound and deep about that. So there's a, a argument you make in the book that the verb of parenting is a pretty recent verb. The way we think about parenting in this carpentry way is a pretty recent way of thinking about it. But but I was reflecting on, you know, what little do I know of, of parenting through the ages, um, whatever we called it then. And it it seemed more carpentry in the sense that isn't the the classic idea of this that you had a bunch of kids because only some would survive and you were trying to create economic help around or have more people to work the farm or to hunter gather with you and you know people stayed closer to the clan and the tribe that you know as much as we have helicopter parents today and everybody's signing their kids up for for mandarin and violin lessons that there's much more of a sense that your kids will grow up differently than you that they can reject you than in most of the, the the time in which children have been um, emerging when, you know, you were supposed to stay with the group and support your parents and, you know, believe in the faith and work the farm and stay in the family business and bear the kids. And it was a much more circumscribed thing. So how much how much have we been uh, traditionally carpenters and how much have we been gardeners? Yeah, well, I mean, of course, the, the thing is that in, say, a traditional uh, a traditional culture, the point is that carpentry is sort of irrelevant because you just assume that the culture is going to be deep enough so that a new group of people are going to be engaged and involved in it. It's kind of interesting when you look at traditional cultures, a lot of times the attitude they have about the kids is just kind of, well, they go off into the jungle or into the forest or they sit in the village and watch. And the idea that you have to go out and do a bunch of things to shape them just doesn't seem relevant. And maybe I think there's a nice analogy to Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma that when we see, oh, no, wait a minute, here's all these possibilities, here's all these different ways that things could turn out, that's when the impulse to have a lot of self-conscious manipulation starts. So so Michael makes this point about, you know, if you look at traditional uh, cultures, food practices, they're very different, but they're all pretty good. They come out pretty well. And nobody's sitting there and saying, oh, wait a minute, should I eat this thing or should I eat that thing? It's just kind of, you know, I'm going to eat the thing that my parents made. And and I think that's true for parenting as well, that if you're in a culture where you get to see lots of people having kids and you're taking care of kids from the time you're a child yourself, which is true in most cultures, um, then the idea that there's a problem, you know, there's an the idea that there's choices and that there's decisions that you have to make, I think that that just doesn't isn't isn't a way of describing what the experience is like. And that's really what the carpentry experience is, is about. Something that surprised me about your book, uh, and when I was reflecting on it, I realized it surprised me because for all I've been reading a lot of parenting books, they actually don't talk that much about love. Yeah. Uh, which is sur- strange, um, given how much that is a dominant experience of it. But how is the approach to love different in um, trying to be a gardener and create a context for your child to flourish and trying to be a carpenter and, and trying to mold your child into the the form that you think will flourish. Yeah. So one idea is that, you know, there's this puzzle about, to put it a little bluntly, right, if we really thought the point of being a parent was to create the 
children that fit some model as best we possibly could, then there'd be good strategy. Look around the community, find the children that we think are most likely to succeed, uh, abandon all the rest of the ones, including ours that are kind of not, don't look like they're going to come out that way very well, and just put all our energy into the kids that we actually think are going to succeed. But of course, if you say that, that sounds creepy and weird and not at all like what parental attachment is about. And we know psychologically, this very word attachment, which is basically psychologies for love, that the most remarkable thing is that we have this baby. We have no idea what the baby's going to be like to begin with. Uh, it's kind of like this this random draw from our genetic pool and our partner's genetic pool and all the generations before us. And within a very short time, it's the most important thing in the universe. And we're completely attached and we're willing to to take care of that baby. And there's no you know, if you have people talk to people who have babies with disabilities or babies with Down syndrome, it's not like the attachment is any different in those cases. Um, and I think that's actually a really deep thing. I think that's true about love in general. Um, if you think about the way that we take care of our elderly parents, for example, that we're capable of developing these attachments that by their very nature don't depend on the characteristics of the person of the person that we love. Now, you know, in in modern romantic love, we sort of feel like, well, you know, we date and we choose someone who we think has the right kind of characteristics. But the whole point about it being love is, you know, that person could end up being sick or that person could end up having Alzheimer's and you'd still have that commitment. Um, and I think there's, there's some very interesting work that uh, the philosopher Kim Sterelny has done, um, and uh, Robert Frank's another, another person who's talked about this, about thinking about love as being this commitment mechanism. If you relied on just contractual tit-for-tat um, back and forth, then that would fall apart. It would be very, very hard to have a community of people who would stick to one another if the only reason for sticking with the, with the, your other person, whether it's a child or a partner or a, or a member of your society, is because you think that you're going to contractually do well out of, that, uh, out of that relationship. And the idea is that for humans in particular who depend on those social ties, who just can't function without those social ties, this sense of kind of an arbitrary commitment to another person, almost by definition, independently of what they do, is turns out to actually be a really good mechanism. And mothers and babies in the mammalian world, this, this, the, this whole neuroscientific system of attachment that comes with particular neurotransmitters and so forth seems to start out with mammalian babies. That, you know, if you think about it, after all, a baby and a mother have the most conflicting interests of anybody on the, on pa the planet. Parasite, parasite host problem. Right. Um, and love is kind of, this sounds a little creepy, but love is a way of solving that problem. Love is a way of, uh, if you're talking about voles or, or, um, or mice, it's a way of being able to have the commitment to the welfare of a creature who's really separate from you. And I think there's at least- And it's in some ways competing with you. And in like some ways, Literally exactly. for the calories coming into your body for- for an extended, that's right. Um, it's a wild thing. I mean, we went through a hard pregnancy and, and, and now our son is very young. And it's just a wild thing seeing what is asked of a mother. Yeah, that's right. One of the things that I say in the book is being a bad parent is harder than just about any other human relationship that you could possibly have. And I think part of the, the picture is that is that, that 
kind of overwhelming and apparently irrational attachment that we have that human beings have really generalized that that set of emotions and that set of ways of being in the world. So it isn't just about, you know, biological mothers and babies, then it becomes about pair bonds between fathers and mothers who are involved in taking care of the babies. And then it becomes the kinship group that you're part of, all the Ella parents and grandmothers that are involved in the babies. And, you know, in contemporary society, you'd hope, or at least you could have a an ideal, and I think that's something like the ideal of the bodhisattva in Buddhism, that you could extend that to the world. Now, obviously, you can't quite actually do that, but I think that's a I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about human relationships that's very different from the kind of contractual way that we typically think about. One of the the things in your book that I've been thinking about really since I read it is you discuss not just how mothers love their children, which I think we at least assume is a much more hormonal biological process, but why do fathers love their children, grandparents, members of the community? And you discuss the idea that that love is grown and nurtured and mediated through the act of care. Yeah. That far from it being a, a give and take, it's actually a give and give. That the more you care for something, like literally do things of caring. Um, you talk about feeling the bolt of love with your grandchild as you are comforting him on a particularly fussy day. And I related to that so much. You know, every time I'm able to to stop my son from crying, like I feel like that, like that that pinion of love being like driven deeper into me. Um, that's a very, it seems to me pretty profound and generalizable insight. It's not just true for us in terms of our uh, parenting mm-hmm. relationships, but in terms of friendships. And there's such a deepening that happens when you're able to help a friend through something hard, even if they're not able to pay you back or they don't hand you a check. You'd be insulted if they handed you a check afterwards for your your therapy services. Could you talk a bit about that idea of, 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 of care as being the thing that signals to, to human beings to love? Yeah, so my my slogan about this is that we don't care for our children because we love them. We love them because we care for them. Uh, so we That's a much simpler way of putting that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as you say, I think that generalizes to a lot of other circumstances that actually even to go back to gardens, one of the reasons why gardening is a satisfying thing is because, you know, I could walk over to the florist and I could get a far better uh, rose or orchid than the one that's in my garden. But the one that's in my garden, that's mine. That's the one that I actually took care of and worried about and and tended to. And, you know, it's interesting. There's a, um, in political philosophy, I think there's an argument to be made that most of the sort of Western traditions of political philosophy start out by saying, okay, here's two people they're trying to make a contract. They're trying to increase each of their utilities, and they're trying to do that by some process of exchange. And then the interesting problem is how could we scale this up so that we have a democracy where people have different things that they want, and you can do this for millions of people, that they can trade off what one person wants in another. Or you have a market where you have really nice mechanisms for getting people to trade off what they want. And that's kind of the picture about what the problem of of political philosophy is. If you look in the Asian traditions, you look in the Chinese tradition, you look at somebody like uh, like Mencius, they have a really different picture. Their picture is look in a family and look at these deep ties that enable people to uh, care for each other even when they're not getting anything in return. You know, Look at how you feel about your brothers or look at how you feel about your children. And then ask, is there a way of scaling that up to the level of 
uh, a community or scaling that up to a, the level of a state? Are there are there institutions we could have or are there things that we could invent that would let us do that kind of scaling up? And I think a lot of the problems, I mean, literally, like, how do we fund childcare or um, how do we take care of elderly people? Um, uh, those are examples of things in in our culture politically that we have a really hard time doing because the model of this kind of contractual uh, this kind of contractual model just isn't the right model to think about those things. But it, it's so unintuitive. And and maybe it is because we get brought up in the contractual model. But something I was thinking about while you're talking is that we have this line, right? I don't want to be a burden. Yeah. And not only do we hear it, but but I think we think it. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying, and, and it tracks with my own experience, is that you will be more loved if you're more willing to be a burden. Mm-hmm. If you're more willing to ask people to to give you care uh-huh. um, to the extent you really try to hold it in and be tough and not be a, a a burden on anyone, it doesn't give people the ability to extend care and it doesn't give those relationships the ability to deepen. So there's this funny way in which our transactionalist assumption of what would make us an appealing person to others, what would embed us in a community, what would keep people from from losing their love for us. I think can be pretty poisonous. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's actually particularly true for men um, mm-hmm. who often have a lot of trouble asking or showing the kind of vulnerability that that admits care, except for maybe their you know, except for their partner or, or, or family. And so then there are fewer people who have learned to care for them and have developed that that kind of closeness with them. Um, this seems to me to be a way in which we really fail to give people a sense of how relationships truly work. Even though to go back to to our core concept of parenting here. It's how our most fundamental relationships work. Exactly. Yeah. One of the curious things is that if to go back to, you know, philosophy not talking very much about children and religion, for that matter, not talking very much about children, if you asked most people, what are the deepest things in your life? What are the things that give your life significance? What are the things that will carry on even when you're not around anymore? What are the hardest dilemmas that you've had to resolve? I think the examples people will give are about these close relationships. They'll be about taking care of their children or taking care of their parents or or dealing with their partners. Those are the things that really are the deep things that give us significance and meaning and a sense of immortality and all the things that, that philosophy and, and uh, spirituality talk about. But at the same time, we treat them as if like they're these weird little idiosyncratic, selfish, egocentric things to even think about. You know, they're the things that are on the lifestyle pages in the, right. in the newspaper. And I think that's a real I think that's a real miss in the culture. And you know, in some ways I think that started to change as women have had more of the the uh, uh, more of an opportunity to be, you know, telling the stories and making the uh, making the decisions and writing the books, but it's sort of fraught for women too because for women of course the fact that there's this world of love and care and attachment and commitment and self-sacrifice, that's actually been problematic for women because mm-hmm. the idea is women are supposed to be associated with that sphere and and that's not the sphere where there's power or authority or, or autonomy. And I think it's, this isn't just theoretical. I think if you look at a lot of the difficulties that we're going through in society and politics now, um, this inability to have both those this inability to think about, say, close personal relationships or local attachments in the same scale as, as the kind of contractual ideas about 
uh, making people's lives better or increasing people's utilities. I think that's that's part of the part of something that underlies a lot of the problems we have. Um, I did a review of um, Stephen Pinker's book Enlightenment in the Atlantic, and I think that's a nice example where if you look at someone like uh, if you look at someone like Steve, he's an example of someone who has this pretty clear model about, you know, what you need to do is maximize people's utilities. And we've gotten better and better at doing that. And I think he's absolutely right about that. And that's, you know, not trivial. That's a really good thing to have happened. But I think he's a little blind to the costs of that in terms of people's sense of their close local attachments. So if you look at rural America and you look at the the crisis of um diseases of despair, you know, of suicide and opioid addiction and so forth. That's probably not mostly because people don't have the immediate resources they need, but I think there's a pretty fair diagnosis that it's a reaction to a sense that these kind of close local relationships aren't functioning as well, that they're under they're under threat. And and again, to get back to explore exploit, it's a trade-off. I mean, this is a this is a trade-off. Being able to have a community where people are really mobile and they can go someplace else, and if the factory's in the other on the other coast, you just go to the other coast and you work in that industry. Um, that kind of model really does have advantages, but it has this downside of of just leaving the uh, leaving the world of close commitments and attachments out of the picture. Let me see if I can connect these things without it being too complicated. Something that has just been unbelievably apparent to me since having a, a child is that the atomized way that we raise children is yeah. insane. It is not how we're supposed to do it. It is not what children are built for. Their schedules are not built for there to be two people taking care of them. They're yeah. built for there to be a lot more people than that around, a lot more kin. The fact that a, a kid is up every three hours is not such a huge deal. If there are 12 or 15 <laughs> or 20 people around, it's a pretty big deal if you've got two people and they're both working. And you know, I grew up, um, both of my parents had moved far away from where they were born. Uh, my father's from Brazil and my mother's from the East Coast. And there just weren't many people around. And I wonder um, for people who have had that experience, both it's a very hard way uh, for, for parents, I think, to, to, to parent. But uh, in addition to that, there just isn't a lot of modeling mm-hmm. of relationships that are not built on that core family unit, that core nuclear unit, as offering that kind of care, as not having that transactional dimension. Mm -hmm. When you don't have a big um, tribe around you, when you don't have um, both kin and and sort of localized community like rooted in that place and rooted in those relationships place, um, it becomes more normal to imagine that you know, your families are to take care of you no matter what. And and those bonds are very deep. And otherwise, people have very uh, defined bonds towards you. There's mm-hmm. a teacher who helps you when you're at school and there mm-hmm. are people who help you at the store. And, you know, you can go on, you can go on like that. But there isn't a lot of example of people just offering self-sacrifice and care just because you're nearby. And I, I, I agree with you. I wonder what that does to us over time. I think it's a very hard thing then to convince yourself that it can or should be different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I completely agree. And from the evolutionary perspective, there's this beautiful concept in evolutionary uh, in evolutionary biology that I think should be much more broadly known, which is life history. So life history is the way that a species develops, how long a period of childhood they have, how many people are involved in, how many adult members of the species are involved in taking care of the babies, how often the babies are born, how long you live 
those are all kind of life history dimensions. And it turns out that from the biological perspective, life history is really important. So often evolution seems to be selecting not for here's a specific, you know, feature of the adult animal, but here's a particular kind of life history. And people like the anthropologist Sarah Hurdy have argued that there were these really significant life history changes in human beings when we evolved. And one of the biggest was that we have alloparents, is what Sarah calls them. We have people who are not biological kin, but who start out doing this caring for babies and develop the same kinds of deep attachments that uh, biological mothers do, say, in, in voles. We also have, you know, my personal favorite um, and something that I think we've neglected terribly. So we also have this 50 to 70-year-old period where we have grandmothers. So we have postmenopausal women who always throughout our whole human evolutionary history have been involved in caring for not just their own grandchildren, but caring for children, caring for the rest of the community. And you know, you don't want to be sent too sentimental about foragers, but it is certainly true that one of the characteristics of those groups would have been, would be still to have a really wide group of people who were involved in in taking care of each of the children. And that that has big advantages both for the children, obviously, and also for the caregivers. So I've been talking uh, with a, a guy named Mark Friedman, who has a, a very nice book about this, who's been trying to revive something called the Experience Corps or the Grandmother Corps, um, where we have this terrible combination of older people who don't, you know, often even physically can't be as productive as they once were, who desperately want relationships and who we sort of park off in estates that remove them from children. And then we have the phenomenon of having children who desperately need care and don't have a bunch of adults committed to caring for them. And it you can't help thinking that somehow solving that, putting together the people with experience and with caring and then the children who really need the care and trying to do that in an organic kind of way would be would be something that would be a really valuable uh, a really valuable thing in this society. And it's interesting to think that of that as a new problem because previously it would have been true in an organic way. Exactly. Right, you wouldn't That's have right. had that that segregation between where the the grandparents are and um and where the older generations are and and where the children are. Yeah. Which you do now. And I think we have a lot of we're starting to have some evidence that those older people again this is maybe just partly autobiographical egocentrism. But um, but I think there is some evidence that the grandmothers and grandfathers have a really different relationship with the children than the parents do. And one of the things they can do is pass on cultural wisdom or knowledge that's different from the kind that you get with the parents. But I think also another important thing is for children, being in a situation in which you have many people who are caring for you gives you, to get back to explore, exploit, gives you a much wider range of possibilities about what the world is like and what human relationships could be like than you'd get if you're just with a mother and father, or in fact, for very large numbers of American children, especially poor children, just with a mother, just one person who's someone who's already under stress, who has to go out and work and usually has to work really hard. That's really a bad model for how to take care of children. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. 
You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. I have all these notes from these last couple of answers, so I want to go backwards and some things you said. But the idea of alloparents is really interesting, mm-hmm. having this network of folks who are not family but would be caring for for, for children um, and, and would be invested in them for their lives. And the thing you made me think about there is teachers, mm-hmm. that there are few more foundational relationships to, to our lives and certainly few more mythologized and venerated relationships than, you know, that teacher who who saw something in us. You know, for me, Mrs. Watkins in sixth grade. Um, and something that is striking about those relationships and in the way they operate within the marketplace is then you leave those people behind mm-hmm. as opposed to um, them kind of naturally being in your orbit. Or, I mean, maybe you try to keep the relationship up, but it's hard. And the idea that in another way of doing it, you would have had people who were playing those same roles, people who had connected to you as a child and saw something in you maybe that other people, even your parents didn't, but would be there is really different um, than than what we permit now. And and we've come to see it as very normal that we'll have these relationships and they'll go away. But maybe that's not as normal as we, mm-hmm. we've come to think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, it's a trade-off. So there's advantages to having mobility and there's advantages to being able to be able to have people not always be in the same place with one another. But there's disadvantages too. And I think teachers um, and preschool teachers are a, a nice example where we really have this kind of mixed message about, is this, you know, another transactional profession where you accomplish something and you're paid for doing it? Well, you want that. Mm -hmm. You want people to be paid and you want people to be paid well. Or is this a relationship of care that doesn't have that kind of structure? And part of the reason why we kind of traditionally got away with paying teachers and paying, especially paying uh, childcare workers and preschool teachers nothing, I mean, less than anybody else in the culture, was because there was a sort of sense of, well, it's mostly women, and that's kind of naturally what they do. Mm-hmm. And and figuring out a way of providing, supporting people who are caring without necessarily thinking about that as this, that's just another, that's just another commodity, you know, that's just another, another care is just another thing that's on the market that we need, that we should pay people to provide. I think that's, that's a really important, challenging a really important, challenging um, problem. And, you know, it's fantastic. All of us developmental psychologists have been working for 40 years to get publicly supported uh, preschool in the United States. You know, that's that's been a, a, a real crusade for all of us for a long time. And now we're getting it, which is great, or at least we're getting hypocritical lip service to it, which is, you know, one step in the along the way. It's important um, to know that you can have beliefs and they cannot be true. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a wonderful line that I like, I think, from La Rochefoucauld, who said that hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. Yeah, it's a great line. Um, and I think that's kind of especially true in a political in a political context. Um, it's good if people are starting to be hypocritical uh, about things like early childhood education. 
But then what what you worry about, of course, is is the right structure for those programs just the same as K through 12 education, which in the United States has not been a great success? Um, do we what you'd want your your intuition is that somehow you'd want grandmoms in there and great aunts and uh, you know the neighbor down the street that somehow that we'd like to integrate that model in a way that isn't just exploiting people but supporting them. And I think that's going to be a really interesting challenge. Something else you were saying that that caught a little light for me was, I wonder how much the feeling that we need to be carpenters, the feeling that we need to mold our children into these like economic warriors mm-hmm. who can triumph society has to do with the breakdown of these larger social contexts mm-hmm. that we thought might catch them. I mean, mm-hmm. in a world where you can trust that there are a lot of people looking out for your children, maybe there's a little bit more ability to let them go their own way, recognizing that other people will be able to help them along too. Whereas if it's really all up to you and then to them, right, that they have to be the ones to, to somehow survive in this dog-eat-dog world with only the the skills and the resources and the launch that you've been able to give them, it feels, um, even saying it, like it reduces a margin for error. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've sort of changed my mind about since I wrote the book, or at least uh, at least have thought about more in, in terms of some of the conversations and reactions I had to the book, is that I think particularly there's this particular paradox, which is we're in an information economy, right? We're in a knowledge economy. What everyone says over and over again is that your ability to thrive depends on things like your degree of education. We're in a context in which knowledge, information uh, is is the currency that allows you to have status and power and authority. And we're also in a in a situation in which that's very competitive and not easy to get and not universal. And there's a sense that there's this tremendous struggle to be the one who's going to be on the top of that information economy uh, uh, pecking order. And I think part of the sort of helicopter parenting and the parenting impulse is because people recognize, oh, no, I need to be able to shape my child, educate my child, make my child have these skills, because otherwise they're going to fall off, fall off of the ladder. And and the sense of the kind of um, you know, this again, this paradox that the meritocracy actually ends up increasing inequality, um, even though it's supposed to it's supposed to help to decrease inequality, that having this very strong difference between the people in the cities, for example, who are highly educated, who are, you know, working in Silicon Valley on the one hand, and then everybody else on the other hand, that's actually led to something that's a much more stratified, feudal kind of setup. Um and I think that some of the helicoptering and the insanity and the strange ways that parents are behaving and the sort of desperate wanting to get, you know, what can I do to make my baby smarter, that I think that kind of makes more sense in that social and economic, uh, in that social and economic framework that it, I don't think it's just sort of parents getting it wrong or being irrational. I think it 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 actually it actually fits with the pressures that they're feeling economically and socially. I want, I'm so glad you brought in the idea of inequality there because I do wonder how much how much is there an inequality of being able to lean into these kinds of risks and, and, and differences. So if you're a child growing up in a protective space where you have resources and you have people looking out for you and you have second chances and you, you have um, 
care, right, all the time, all around you. How much more room is there developmentally for them to try things out, for them to to go in different directions? And if you're growing up in a more dangerous space where mm-hmm. you can't relax into that, where you um, mm-hmm. you uh, are not, you don't have people there gardening around you all the time. Uh, one thing that it, it makes me think about is uh, first, just a, you know, the the uh, intensity of feeling the need to do carpentry. Yep. as a parent in that world might be more intense because you recognize that the risks a child can take if they're living, say, in an unsafe area can go much worse than the risks a child might take living in a safe area. But the other is I just wonder how much more access it gives the children themselves to, to mm-hmm. that kind of development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting sort of, again, a, a tension or a paradox that's that's built into the idea of attachment. Um, John Bowlby was the psychologist a long time ago after after the Second World War who first talked about this. And he made the point that having these close bonds, having a sense of a nurturing, safe environment is what enables you to go out and explore and take risks. And, you know, I think there's lots of reasons to believe that many, many different kinds of cultures and environments can provide that kind of a safe space in which you can explore. The sad thing is that the environment that we're in now, at different ends of the spectrum, doesn't provide that environment. So I think even worse than poverty is isolation. So if you are in a situation where you don't have resources and things are dangerous and you're isolated, then you're not going to be able to do that kind of exploration. On the other hand, if you look at you know very highly privileged kids in our culture, they can end up being in the same situation even though they've got lots of resources. So the kids whose parents won't let them take a you know, take public transit, for example, or who won't let them walk to school, who get arrested if they let them walk to school when they're eight or nine years old or go to a public park. That sort of at both ends of the spectrum, you see this this real closing in of uh, possibilities. And I think it's at least possible, I don't think we have good data about this, that the kind of epidemic of anxiety that we see in in adolescence is connected to not being able to take risks and succeed in taking risks early on. So it seems to me that that might be the kind of psychological equivalent of the increase in allergies, where it seems like part of the reason why we have the increase in allergies is because uh, is because of the hygiene hypothesis that we don't have kids' immune systems being challenged and adjusting to those challenges. I think psychologically, if children are not being able to be in situations in which they can take risks and have them work out okay, then anxiety is kind of the thing that comes out of that, uh, of that uh, being in that situation, both anxiety for, for people at all, uh, for children at, in different kinds of economic circumstances. And I wonder about the modeling of that. I mean, something you you discuss in the book is a way that children are very good at seeing what we do. Mm-hmm. And the more we model anxiety about their choices, the more, in theory at least, they would, or for that matter, we would, I was a child once, <laughs> would absorb anxiety about those choices. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right too, in the sense of sort of social and economic anxiety about what will happen if, you know, if you fail this test, is that going to be the end of is that going to be the end of the world? There's a very nice experiment that I was just looking at that I think is a, an experiment that we've done and an experiment that comes out in the neuroscience literature. The first version of this was actually done with mice. And what they discovered is, you know, think about the classic John Watson behaviorist situation. You've got a rat in a maze and one goes down one arm of the maze and 
he gets a shock. He goes down the other arm. Nothing happens. And of course, you put him in the maze and he never goes to the place where he gets the shock. Okay, we think that's kind of the most basic foundational kind of learning. But of course, if you think about it for a minute, that learning has a big downside, which is suppose things change. Suppose there isn't a shock at the end of that arm anymore. If what you've learned is don't ever try, avoid that negative outcome, then you'll never find out if the environment has changed. And uh, and what Regina Sullivan found out was that young mice didn't show that avoidance learning. And in fact, if the mother was there, they preferred to go to the place where they'd gotten the negative outcome. And it was as if information was more important for them than than utility, than just avoiding the shock, even if it meant that uh, as long as they were learning something and they kind of, you know, it's mice, but implicitly sort of thought, look, mom is here. Ultimately, things are going to be okay. She's going to be able to take care of me. Let me try and explore this risky situation. Um, and there's some evidence that that's also true with children. And we've we've done some experiments showing that if you sort kind of set up that situation, children uh, can often end up learning more than adults because they're more willing to to take risks. They're more willing to have losses if those losses are accompanied by. Uh, by information. And how much do you do you see a difference in the kinds of risks children are willing to take depending on their relationship to their caregivers? Yeah, I mean, this is an old literature, and I think there's quite a bit of evidence that the secure attachment, the safe attachment, and having high resources, or at least having a sense that you have high high resources, signals that you have high resources, are exactly the things that enable you. In fact, in some circumstances, there's some evidence to have a longer childhood, to be to to even physically uh, have a longer period of childhood before you uh, before you mature, and also to spend do more exploration in that childhood. You you were talking a minute ago about the rise of of anxiety among young people. You have a pretty interesting discussion in the book about ADD and attention deficit disorders, mm-hmm. and you describe a study about how showing that attention deficit uh, diagnoses rise depending on how we roll out standardized testing. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so this is this is work that my colleague uh, uh, Stephen Hinshaw did, um, where they showed it was a kind of nice natural experiment because different states instituted standardized testing in different ways and at different times. So you could have a kind of exogenous variable of now standardized testing is there and then see how that influenced um, the diagnosis of ADHD. And what they discovered was that anytime standardized testing came in, the diagnoses went up. And I think the right way of thinking about that, get back to thinking about the the psychedelics. Um, I think that if you're thinking about childhood as being adapted to exploration and learning, one of the things that that goes with, and there's data that suggests this, is a much broader attentional focus than we have as adults. So one thing that naturally seems to happen, a way I like to put it is it's not that kids have trouble paying attention, it's that they have trouble not paying attention. Um, You know, if you think about your baby, anything that's around the edges, the corners, anything around captures uh, attention. And then as you get older, you get more and more control. So now you can say, okay, I'm not going to take in any information about anything except the thing that's relevant to my specific goal. Now, in our culture, that form of attention has turned into a form of attention that probably for most of our history would have seemed really, really bizarre. So like, imagine that you're in a forager culture and there's some poor guy who sits in a corner by himself looking at something for an hour without paying attention to anything else that's going on around him. You know, you might think 
this poor child is suffering from attention surplus disorder. He's got this really strange attentional style that is just obviously dysfunctional and not adaptive. Um, but of course, once you start having schools, then that uh, that style becomes something that is adaptive and that you encourage and you select for and you try and get people to do. Um, and then the other style becomes uh, becomes something that's a, a, a medical problem, becomes maladaptive and then gets treated as if it's a disease that you have to a disease that you have to cure, which is not to say, I mean, you know, if something's maladaptive, it's maladaptive. If you're in a culture in which you have to go to school, then you might need to do things to try and get kids to go to school. But but the general picture is to think about a community having this wide range of different kinds of, this gets back to the garden, right? If you could think about a community having a wide range of different kinds of strengths and weaknesses, and that that gives you a more robust picture overall, then having a bunch of creatures who are all just adapted to do one particular thing. Given um, how badly I did in school, and I mm -hmm. genuinely did quite badly, uh, I can't believe I got through it without a diagnosis of attention deficit disorder. I think today I absolutely would have been put on yeah. Adderall. And because my big thing was I couldn't pay attention to somebody lecturing at the front of class. I just couldn't. Like, still cannot today, really. And forever, I just thought of that as a problem in me. You know, like that I was just a a, a failure or was not going to be successful in life. I mean, it, it it was the strangest thing in my life was that later on I was able to to be and be understood as a hard worker when I was able to focus my attention in very different ways, use it in use it on very different things. And I'm sure part of it was maturation, too. But you seem very critical in the book of the way we structure K-12 education. And I'm I'm curious if you think there are places to do it better or ways to do it better. Well, you know, there's a long tradition of uh, inquiry-based education. So we have, this is true in preschool, it's also true in, in, uh, in elementary school, where we have models of educational systems in which children uh, get more of a chance to explore, actually get a chance to inquire more, where they're more like the process of something like science. I think it's really difficult because, again, the the point of K through 12 education is not very clear. And it kind of depends on what it is that you think it's going to do. So for a developmental psychologist, if you think that what it will do is let you find out more things about the world, learn more, the kinds of things we often give lip service to, be more creative, then something like an inquiry-based education of which we have models, progressive um, progressive schools of one sort or another um, is, is a good idea. On the other hand, if what you want is for people to get very specific skills that will allow them to function well in factories, which after all was the original impetus for having uh, compulsory K through 12 education, then that's a really different project that you you ha would have a very different kind of structure. Um, my own kind of view that I talk about in the book is, again, you look back at forager cultures, um, very often what's happening in that 7 to 12 uh, period, as opposed to sort of the 0 to 7 period, is some kind of apprenticeship. And I think children very naturally take to a kind of apprenticeship learning. And we don't have very much of either the kind of inquiry, explorer, creative kind of learning, or the kind of goal-directed apprenticeship, now you're going to get a particular skill that you're actually going to be able to use learning. We don't really have very much of either of those in, in schools. Mostly what we have in schools is becoming really expert at going to school. That's the thing that you're learning you're learning to do more more than anything else. 
Um, but I think it's difficult because we'd need to know something or think more deeply about what the purpose of these institutions are before we can figure out how we could actually reform them. And this seems to me like a, a place where potentially we know what the purpose is and we just don't really want to admit it. Well, purpose is to, this sounds cynical even for me, but it often seems to me the purpose at this point is to try to get kids into school or try to get them into a job, right? It's very instrumental. It's tried to make them better at schooling or something that we think mimics schooling. Um, and that's different than what education was when it was more of a privilege and rare and it was about a, a kind of citizen and, and, and character development. But it's also, uh, it's very much, you know, we are cogs in a, in a social and capitalistic machine and you gotta, you gotta make more of the cogs. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it, there's a sincere sense that what we want people to do is to be able to learn more and to be more creative and to become citizens and so forth in schooling. Um, but I do think that's in tension with the desire to, which is a perfectly reasonable desire to actually have adults who are going to be productive and do things that we want them to do and produce things that we think are valuable and important. Um, I think schooling is a place, again, where this explore-exploit tension really shows up, um, where the kinds of things that you need to do to be able to have lots of possibilities, have lots of information, and the kinds of things that you need to do to become really skilled, those those are different from one another. And, you know, again, I think there's an argument that part of what's happened historically is that, for instance, if you think about adolescence, we've really extended the period of adolescence longer and longer and longer. And that has the advantage of people having lots more possibilities, trying lots more different jobs, lots more different relationships, getting more information about the world around them. It has the disadvantage that they're, they haven't been able to commit to being really, really, really skilled in one particular job or, or one particular relationship. And I don't, think there's, I don't think there's a way of just choosing to say, yeah, one of those alternatives is better than the other. But but I do think it's a tension that you have to think about when you're thinking about things like how adolescents function. So you told me that your next book is actually on creativity. Can, yeah. Tell me a bit about what you're working on. Yeah. So the book, the book's going to be called um, Explore. Um, my editor thinks that I should not put an exclamation mark. I'm, I'm tempted to. I kind of, I kind of like exclamation marks. Um, <laughs> well, uh, if you text uh, the title to anybody, you'll need to do yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, and. The idea is to try to have a kind of grand unified theory of childhood that says all these features of childhood that we think of as being kind of weird and strange and eccentric um, actually makes sense if you think about it from the perspective of, you know, creating a creature that gets this period of exploration before they exploit. And I've been spending a lot of my time recently talking to people in AI um, and it's sort of fascinating because people in AI are beginning to realize that they're coming up against the limits of the kind of learning that that typical AI systems are doing. And they're trying to look for better models for learning. And of course, it's hard to think of a better model for learning than children. And one of the ideas that comes out in AI is that the way of resolving this explore-exploit tension is to have an early period when you get lots of opportunities to explore, you don't have a lot of pressure to to uh, exploit, to achieve goals, and then a kind of later, narrower focus on particular kinds of problems, but still with the possibility of moving it back and forth into this kind of explore mode. And I think that might be a really good model for what evolution did when evolution designed children, that um, that childhood gives you that period. You know, one, 
one way I put it sometimes is the only real utility you have when you're two years old is to be as cute as you possibly can be. And two-year-olds are really, really good at maximizing that utility. Um, but you just go out and be as cute as you possibly can be. And basically, everything else around you is going to be is going to be taken care of. Uh, then what you can do is be curious and explore and find out what's going on, uh, find out what's going on around you. So I think there's a big picture about how you resolve, explore, exploit tensions, what kinds of brain or computational system or affect or phenomenological experience of the world goes with being in that broad, wide-ranging explore mode. And I think the best examples we have of that are our children. Do you, uh, do you know the science fiction author Ted Chiang? Yeah. His book, Exhalation, which I think it came out two years ago, but I just read it a couple months ago. It has a, it's kind of central story in it is just everything you just said. It mm -hmm. is about AI. It is about how would you do it if you actually did have to create an explore exploit period, then what would happen when the AI needed to actually show that it had something to exploit? It's a really beautiful and affecting story, but, um, but it's worth, um, I, I think you would enjoy it, but also just for, for people listening, it's a, it, uh, has stuck with me. Um, do you think that if those of us who are now adults want to make space for that creativity, uh, if we want to think a little bit less like adults and a, and a little bit more like children, there are ways to do it? Yeah, I think there are. And a lot of them have to do with, recon uh, with uh, reproducing some of the conditions of childhood. And, and particularly, it, one of the things I say sometimes is that kids are the R&D division of the human species and we're... <laughs> We're production and marketing. You have a lot of good lines. <laughs> well, that's that that that's the thing. The main thing that Gopniks learned growing up around the dinner table was that a snappy line was uh, a snappy line was a good way of getting approval. Um, and you know, if you think about even just something as crude as thinking about a company having an R and D division, the idea behind the R and D division is okay. We're going to take some of the people and we're going to put them aside, and we're going to say, look, you don't actually have to worry about bringing the products to market. You don't have to worry about what the bottom line is. Just figure out what the possibilities are in this uh, in this industry or for this problem. And of course, universities, um, and I think actually formal science is, is a really wonderful example of that, that in the 17th century, what happened was just, I think partly by fluke, there were enough people who had enough resources that they could, uh, they were allowed to just go off and solve problems for their own sake and play and consider possible ways the world could be that were different from the ways that we typically thought of the world being. Um, I think things like uh, certain kinds of spiritual traditions that have the idea that people retreat for some period of time. Um, things like meditation are interesting because they seem to have a lot of the same kind of character that somehow by, I mean, in that case, like literally not moving, not planning, not thinking about what you're going to do next, you could end up having insights that you wouldn't have otherwise. I think that's another nice, uh, another nice example. So I think the big picture idea is that by putting adult brains in situations that are kind of like childhood, where you're relieved from having to solve immediate goals, where you have a, a kind of affect of curiosity and play for its own sake of intrinsically driven motivation rather than motivation for something that's going to happen later on. That's a way that as adults we can 
get back into that explore mode. And I think for as long, again, you know, if you if you look at forager cultures, for instance, there's beautiful work by the anthropologist Polly Wiesner, and she describes what's happening during the day versus what's happening at night. And what's happening during the day, and I find this actually kind of comforting, is that, you know, 30% of the time people are actually talking about work and 30% of the time they're making sex jokes and 30% of the time they're complaining about what other people are doing and why they're not actually working as much as they actually as they actually should. But when the sun goes down and everyone's sitting around the fire, suddenly you're in this different mode where you're not thinking about what it is that you have to do and how irritated you are at all of your fellows who are not doing the things they're supposed to be doing. You're thinking about how the world could be different, how it was in for the ancestors, how it is in a in a different place. There's a lot of storytelling in that. Uh, exactly. And I think storytelling, fiction, narrative, which seem to be very deep human capacities, are connected to that explore. You know, if you think about telling a story, that's what it is. It's it's saying, here's something that's possible. Here's something that could have happened, but actually didn't. When I read that in the book, it had a slightly sad resonance to me, which is, so it, it's described, as you say, you know, there's this one thing that's happening during the day, and then at night, people gather around the fire, and they're telling each other stories. And I realized, like, we kind of do that now. Um, night falls, and we gather around this kind of flickering light, and we yeah. get told stories. <laughs> I mean, it's in this very atomized, non-social way, but the... I, I know very few people who don't gravitate towards some kind of storytelling at night. And so first, it was the first time I thought, maybe that's a deeper biological and mm -hmm. temporal urge, right? Maybe mm -hmm. it was actually something about night. But also the idea that we all just sort of do it tuning into to the TV now. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's fine, right? Maybe the stories are better. But it, it, something about it struck me as a slightly wan recreation of, of something maybe much deeper. Well, maybe, except that you've got, you know, whatever it is, 100,000, probably a million people saying... So what do you think is going to happen in Game of Thrones, right? You know, do you so think I, I can tell you it's a lot more than a million. <laughs> well, not now. Now it's over. But <laughs> uh, you know, now it's what the hell happened in Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe that's actually saying, and and in fact saying, and what does that you know what does what does that mean about what we think about power and uh, and women and uh, and the way that things will work out. Um, what does it mean about the deep things that are important in our culture? So I guess the trade-off is we don't have the nice fire and the nice, well, maybe we do come to think of it. You know, we do sit and cuddle up on the sofa uh -huh. and sit close and have our children near us. Um, maybe not for Game of Thrones, but for other things. Uh, it may, may, may not be that different. So there's uh, the question, the version of this question, which I asked, which is about ourselves. And then there's a version of the question, which I think is in some ways more relevant to the book, which is, how do we do it for others? Um, so the book is obviously pushing us or encouraging us to take this gardening approach to, to parenthood. But there's so much in there that felt relevant to me to marriages, to friendships, to, to being a family member. How do we create this gardened space for others in our adult relationships? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And, um, and some sense of being willing to have these commitments that that are unconditional, that aren't in the context of a, a transactional space, I think is is a way of thinking about that. So, you know, if you think about that word parenting, for instance, that very recent word, we don't wive our husbands and we don't friend our friends and we don't child our parents. And if we did, it would be kind of weird. But I think I think in a culture where the kind of um uh, carpentry mode is so much the official mode, the one that you know shows up in the gross domestic product, for example. 
it's hard to think of those relationships as being as valuable, even if they're not actually being productive, as all the other things that we do that are productive. Uh, I was I was talking to some economists about this. I mean, none of the care shows up in the GDP. So we have no way of saying, is this a country where people love each other and sit and listen to the problems that their child has or their partner has or their friend has? Um, that's all completely invisible. Or even take care of their old people. That's all completely invisible. Um, so I think something about being able to articulate what's going on uh, in those relationships of care is really important. And and I think the thing, one of the things that's one of the things that's so wonderful and deep and difficult about being a, a parent or a grandparent or a caregiver is that simultaneously you get to be in the world, this wonderful, crazy, exploratory world of children, especially very young children. And on the other hand, you're the one who has the goal-directed, productive, exploit responsibility, which is probably the greatest responsibility you're ever going to have to make sure that, you know, there's food on the table and uh, uh, and a roof over your head and that this child is being taken care of. So it's, it's simultaneously kind of the most grown-up thing that you ever do and a chance to be the most childlike thing that you can ever do. And, you know, in terms of sort of practical advice to, to parents, I do think that being in the kind of momentary mode of just being with the child and seeing the range of things that they're thinking about is is a real benefit of being a parent that that ought to be treated as an important benefit in its own right quite independently. Is this going to be good for the child in the long run or is this going to be good for me in the long run? Well, that's an interesting way of putting that. Um, you know, something I got warned and actually in some of the books I read, uh, it, it said this pretty explicitly that the relationship is all take, 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 that the the thing that will surprise you about being a parent is you may love your child, but they just take. And it doesn't feel exactly like that. And, no. and, and that seems like a good way of putting it, that, there, that there's a lot of value and it's interesting to... I mean, even at this point, to to try to see the world through another creature's eyes who's experiencing it so so differently. There's a lot more. I mean, <laughs> it's a lot more interesting than most things I, I do in a day. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's another part of it, which is that it's the most intense, self-sacrificing relationship and love you're ever going to know. And then 20 years from now, the person that you're completely, utterly in love with is going to go off and sleep with somebody else and maybe send you an affectionate text message every couple of weeks. And that's good. Like, that's a good outcome. Um, it's really kind of hard to imagine falling deeply in love and committing yourself to taking care of this person 24-7 with the understanding that 15 years from now they're going to go and leave you uh, and that you're going to want them to leave you. Um, one of the things uh, about having the children grow up is that you... I always said, you know, it's the end of the most intellectually interesting, spiritually intense and centrally satisfying relationship that you ever have on the one hand. But on the other hand, like the house is clean and <laughs> you can sleep. And one of the interesting things is that it feels like, OK, yeah, I could see that that would be. You I could get see to that do that some that more exploiting be, again. <laughs> yeah. I could, OK, that would be a reasonable trade off. Um but I think there's a tension because, you know, of all the, especially for women, because of all the sort of sentimentality about motherhood, that it's this wonderful, great thing, and then you actually do it, and it's got all these downsides, and it's difficult. Uh, but I think that may lead us to really downplay 
the extent to which it is this incredibly interesting and satisfying and even you know even just physically having these beautiful creatures around you who are who are bright-eyed and looking around the world that's that's just a kind of intrinsic satisfaction um but i think it's very hard for people maybe especially in our culture to think about uh satisfactions and values that are just intrinsic that aren't in the service of something else so to just say you know what this moment with this baby right now is valuable and important and it will be valuable important valuable and important no matter what happens 20 years from now no matter what happens in the future um and some of the you know some of the deep commitment has that kind of flavor it's about this child not all the other possible children or not all the other children that this child could be it's this particular person at this particular moment that's the person that i love and the person that i want to be with um and that doesn't really have anything to do with is he going to go to harvard or not go to harvard um and i i think if we could somehow have more moments more of that experience and not have quite as much of the am i doing the right thing what's going to happen in the long run that would be a, a kind of healthier way of being in the world in general. That feels like a good place uh, and a beautiful place to bring us to a close. So let me ask you the the final question we always uh, offer here, which is, what are three books that have influenced you, um, and you and maybe even your children that, that you would recommend <laughs> to others? Well, a great philosophical book that I always recommend is David Hume's Treatise of Human Nature. That's a that's a wonderful book that I think if you're interested in philosophy and psychology and the way that the two can go together um, and if you're interested in asking this big question about how we know about the world around us, that's a really great book that can give you a good insight. Um, Alice in Wonderland is a book that I read obsessively when I was a child and that I'm delighted to see that my grandchildren are starting to read too. And I think there's a few examples in literature of people who really kind of got it about what the state of childhood was like, about what this kind of exploration actually felt like. And and Alice does it in a way that gives you a sense of the possibility and also gives you a sense that sometimes it could be scary or sometimes it could be it could be strange, not just that it's always uh, not just that it's always good. And I think I think it captures a lot of the quality of what it's like to be a child. Um, and Jean Piaget's books, Piaget's developmental psychology is is has been pretty much superseded now and a lot of the things that he said were true turn out not to be true not surprisingly since he was writing in uh he was writing in the 1920s and 30s but he was really one of the very first people to really take seriously the idea that children uh could tell us something deep about these big questions and he or as it turns out actually his wife was who did the observations in the book was an amazing observer of babies and young children saw things that other people didn't see when i was in graduate school i i was in oxford and i sat in a punt with my friend and and co-author andy meltsoff and we just read piaget and that was a that was a really important insight it's a little tricky now because it's still true that as always you know education is 30 years behind or 40 years behind science so Piaget is not the authority at all now about developmental psychology. What we've done is very different from Piaget. But I still think that's an important, influential book. Alison Gopnik, thank you very much. Thank you very much, yes. Thank you to Alison Gopnik for being here. Thank you to my producer, Jeff Geld. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. We'll be back in a couple of days.